And welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And we're talking about A Quiet Place Part 2. Yes. Today. Not A Quiet Place 2. A Quiet Place Part 2. It's one of the many expanding series. <laughs> well, we had... It's a whole universe, babe. Yeah. Well, we, we discussed on the first podcast, the first one we loved, we discussed the possibility of a sequel and you were saying, well, I don't see why not. And particularly you were saying, I don't see why not have the same family appear in the sequel. Yes. And I was saying... I could see a sequel in a universe, kind of Cloverfield sense of, like, these aliens are here on Earth, mm. and we go around the world seeing, you know, because the thing in the first one was, oh, there's some in London, there's some in Moscow, and we've just seen this family of four people. Mm. But no, we catch up with the same family. In fact, we pick up right where the, the first film left off. Mm. So, spoilers will be coming up. The basic idea is aliens have come to Earth, and they rely on sound. They're all about sound. They hear very, very well. And your whole thing is if you make a single bit of noise, you are going to be hunted down and immediately killed. Mm. Which we saw a bit of in the first film, and we see some of in this film. Mm. At the end of the first film, this is where, you know, spoiler territory for the first film is coming up immediately, John Krasinski's character, who was the dad, and John Krasinski directed and co-wrote the film, has died. And we're left with Emily Blunt, who's the mother of the family, Millicent Simmons, who's a daughter, who's hard of hearing, mostly mm. deaf, and uh, Noah Jupe, who's the son, and a little tiny baby who's come along. Mm. We pick up with them the moment after they've just found out at the end of the first film how to fight the monsters, which is to use Millicent Simmons' hearing aid to make a very, very high-pitched noise that freaks them out and gives you the chance to shoot them in the head. Yes, and the son has grown into almost a teenager. So this is meant to happen the next day, but really, like, he's, he's shot up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like we're, we're sort of, what, two, two and a half years later in real life, and in the film, it's second. Like, we actually see the shot of them, you know, getting yeah. out of the den. So it's funny to see them. the kids have grown up so much. Yes. But, you know, it's, yeah, it's what it is. It's not a problem. Spoilers it's for the second thing. film will be coming up, right? Yes. Um, so in this film, they're looking for... Well, in this film, they're still trying to survive... And it's about kind of how events happen. So there's there's a, a, a fire they see in the distance and they head towards it. And that's, you know, there might be someone there. Who knows what's going to happen? There's really no goal at the start, right? It's mm. just get out of here and f- keep on surviving. Mm. They come across Killian Murphy, who's a new introduction for this film, who is someone to the East to know, which makes sense, right? So initially, you're like, oh, wait a minute, you know, what are the odds? But mm. actually, they're in the same town, like... They probably would know someone there. Yes, of course. <laughs> um, and he's... There's a lot of tropey stuff going on in this film, I would say. And yes. he's very much in the sole survivor. He's lost everybody. He doesn't trust anybody. There's No one's worth saving. And they're going to have to try and get him to help. And his faith in humanity is restored by a young girl. <laughs> 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 I mean, really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, overall, you know, did you have a good time? I did. Um, So I'm making fun of it because the film really is full of cliches. Mm. But, you know, I I jumped out of my seat, I don't know how many times. Yeah. So it really worked on me. I think the film visually is quite beautiful. I was just reading that actually that it was shot on Kodak film. Mm. Right. And you, you, I mean, I was going to say you can tell, though actually I am not very good at telling. Yeah, though, you know, the film has a depth of an image, you know, that I associate with uh, uh, 35. Mm. Uh, and it's beautifully lit. It's done by Pauli Moran. I think one of the things that I picked up 
of Wiki, which I think is interesting, is that both... So the cinematographer for the first film was Charlotte Bruce Christensen, and the cinematographer for this film is Polly Morgan. So it's nice to see women, you know, getting this kind of work. It's still kind of mm. relatively unusual. And, it's you know, it's a really great job, so I was really glad to see it. Um, there are things about the world depicted that are perplexing to me still. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, you know that they're aliens, but are they all over the world? Are they just in North America? We find in this film that they can leap into boats, but actually they're afraid of water and instantly drown. So, they can't swim, yeah. Yeah, so have the oceans been some kind of protection to other continents, or is this like a worldwide crisis? Well, it's not addressed in this film at all whether it's worldwide, but in the first film, although the whole film was American set, there was this, you know, John Krasinski's character's notes that he had on the aliens. They had, like I say, London, Moscow, like they definitely know just from the background that they're around, but it's purely background, and in here, not addressed at all. Right. It's still just a purely American crisis, as far as this film's concerned. Not only, in fact, not just purely American, purely this family. Mm. You know, you yes. really get very, very little sense of how it's affected other people for most of the film. Yes. It's very insular, very much about how this family can, can continue to cope. Yes, it is very much about the nuclear family, which I think is one of the problems with it. Mm. You know, so even when the film's world extends... You know, and you eventually get to this island where people are surviving seemingly mm. quite openly. It's still not about the community, and the community does very little, you know, and in fact, kind of, you know, much of it is decimated at the end anyway. You know, it really is about this particular family surviving. It's about the nuclear family very much, I think. Which, yeah. Which is a very warped view of the world. Yeah, I mean, we were remarking just before we started the podcast on the film's uh, whiteness and general kind of conservatism and it's it, it's not it doesn't come across as like an ideological project it just comes across as something that has not been questioned at any point yeah that this like you were saying there's no idea in this film that there are other ways to live yes really. i mean you know so you were saying earlier and i think it's very relevant to this that richard brody had criticized the first film mm. you know saying uh I forget what you said it said, but, you know... That... Let, well, let me go get back to it. Let me just um, give you the, uh, the quote. Here we are. So it's a paragraph from Wikipedia on the film's themes and so on. Richard Brody, writing for The New Yorker, criticised A Quiet Place for what he perceived to be the inclusion of conservative and pro-gun themes in the film. He described it as, quote, the antithesis of Get Out and, quote, both apparently unconscious and conspicuously aggressive, and he opined that it, quote brings to the fore the idealistic elements of gun culture while dramatising the tragic implications that inevitably shadow that idealism. Yes, and then ostensibly John Krasinski said, oh, well, I didn't, I didn't intend any of that, I didn't say any of that, I, you know, the implication being that it's not there. And you mentioned how Jordan Peele had done a similar thing. With Get Out. With Get Out. And, of course, the thing is that, you know, just because you don't... A, a filmmaker doesn't intentionally put there, or an artist doesn't intentionally put something there doesn't mean that it is not there that you know they could be unconsciously reproducing you know a lot of you know social conventions that they take as natural as a natural way of being Mm. right and of course you know you could make the argument that an artist's function is you know not only 
to uh, represent those ways of being, but to critique and challenge and imagine different ways of being. That's what you know, truly great artists do. Mm. <laughs> you know, and there's definitely none of that here. No, um, and I, th I think it's probably worth pointing out that John Krasinski, who, as I said, directed and co-wrote the first film, wrote and directed this alone. Yes. So the two guys who whose story and screenplay the first film was based on chose not to come back to this. They wanted to do further original things. They didn't want to make a sequel. So it's just John Krasinski behind the screenplay. And, you know, the one kind of alternative, if you like, uh, way of living that the film imagines here is Killian Murphy's character living alone, having given up on everyone, you know, mm. just trying to go alone. Like, he doesn't have a nuclear family, he doesn't have anything like that, he's given up on it all. And well, they've been killed, so, right. you know, he's lost it. So, you and, know... But, and what, so what ultimately happens to him is he finds a reason to live, and the reason to live is the new nuclear family that's coming to his life. I know. So this is, I think, where it can be read really, you know, I mean, it is a critique of the film. But this is how it imagines the world, and it's almost the only way that it imagines the world. So, you know, Killian Murphy's abject and lost. Why? Because he's lost his family. What gives him hope? A new family and belonging to it. What is Freedom Island or whatever? It's, <laughs> you know, barbecues, <laughs> right? Like yeah, suburban... Proper Americana. Yeah, suburban life kind of, you know, taking place unchecked with... And not just suburban life. It's all white people except for Jamon... Jamon Hansu, Hansu. Who's the guy they, they yeah. meet. And, and the alien comes in. He gets the alien away with his car and just killed about five minutes after you meet him. Yeah. You know, and, and it sounds like such a obvious kind of plain criticism, like the one black guy dies. And it's such a trope in the horror movie, the black guy dies. But the black guy does die in this. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, in fact, I was, the moment he turned up, I thought... Why? Why couldn't? Why wasn't Killian Murphy's character black, right? Yes. Or Asian? Or like, what? What would be the problem with that? Yes. You know, and it's just it really speaks of kind of corporate, non-questioning no, no, casting. No, 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 fuck corporate. This is Krasinski's problem. You know that he can't imagine. You know, an America with like blacks and Latinos and single moms or gay people or whatever. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think you know, he, he wrote it and he directed it. So yeah, no, I don't mean to absolve him. I think maybe uh, he like it. it well, I don't know what went into the decision, but I was reading that Brian Tyree Henry was originally cast for Hunsu's role and then didn't take it because there was scheduling. Mm. So, like, the idea you have gave one black actor and replaced him with another black actor for this minor role where he'll die immediately. Yeah. When I say corporate, I don't mean, like, you know, oh, John Krasinski wanted this, that, and the other, and they came down like a ton of bricks. It's very possible that you go... Well, it's like we're talking about a conservative mindset being reproduced unconsciously. Yes. You just don't think to... You know, that's just what you do. You get Killian Murphy. Mm -hmm. But it's, is the Killian Murphy character not meant to be John Krasinski's brother? Is he his brother? I yeah. thought they were... Um... Well, I could be wrong. But you see, that would make a difference. If he's meant to be the brother, then the, the character is more understandable. You know? uh, but he need not be the brother. I mean, If he was, I missed that. Let me just see if I can find... Um... I thought he was like, just a friend. Ah, well, if he's, if he's a friend, then there's no reason why, you know, the, it was... Yeah, he's just a friend. He's just a friend. Well, then you're right, you know. I mean, they, <laughs> you know they could have cast Hen Brian, so, Terry Henry. Brian Terry Henry in that role. Yeah. And then I'm sure he would have taken it, right? Like, because, you know, who wants to play Jamon Hansel's role, really? Five minutes and five minutes, and then mm. you're, you're, you're an alien's lunch. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, I don't want to be too down on the film because I did really enjoy it and I think it's really functional, good horror thriller stuff. It's less functional than the first film, which I thought was really special. Although part of what made the first one really special was the full audience that did not make a noise after about half an hour. Yeah. Really got into it. And the, the filmmaking remains... I think it's remains quite very, very good. The film flows and has rhythm and... And know, it understands action set pieces and it understands kind of building tension for wanting to know that... But I do have a problem in that I felt less tension than I did in the first film. In the first film, I really felt tension and even fear um, as to how things would develop and what was going to happen. And this here, is cheaper. Well, here I, f- I felt curiosity. You know, I felt curiosity. And I, felt, I, I was emotionally distant from the film when it was doing the same sort of thing. So it has the same technique of splitting up the characters and then cross-cutting between yeah. their various action really. set pieces. And, you know, as one action set piece, something exciting happens, and exciting happen things in another, and so the tension kind of builds across them. That's quite effective, and it works, but I felt less involved in it. And I think part of it is that I never felt any sense of danger, actually, that I did in the first film. I didn't expect John Krasinski's character to die in the first film, for instance. And I didn't really know what was going to happen with Emily Blunt giving birth in it. Whereas here... Uh, you've got, so for instance, Millicent Simmons gets on that train. She goes off on her own. She gets on this train and, you know, she makes a bit of a noise. Alien comes in. Is she going to be able to shoot it? And this thing happens where she shoots it, but she doesn't get it. And she's not going to be able to reload the gun in time. She basically gives up and it's like, well, I got to hope that it doesn't kill me. And what happens? Killian Murphy shows up, shoots things from... It's such a trope. You know, shoots it dead and he, he, also, she's saved. I mean... Didn't question that that was going to happen, right? I didn't feel like... Actually, there's a possibility she might it die d- here, of course. It doesn't trust the audience uh, with information. So, you know, a lot of the biggest scares were really jump scares. Mm. Yeah, it was like, you know, something appearing out of nowhere, right? And you're going, yeah. Yeah. Which is like the cheapest kind of scare tactic that you have. Mm. Uh, you know, and other times it's, it's better. It shows you like something out of focus in the background. Mm. Yeah. But then it doesn't kind of give you the means to figure out how the character is going to get out of that situation. It doesn't show you, oh, there's the gun, but he can't reach it. Or yeah, It's kind of a bit more um, deus ex machina than yeah, I think the first film was. The bit with Killian Murphy that I just described certainly is. Um, I'm not sure that is entirely true, but I think... Um, so another one that, that came, came to mind is when Killian Murphy and Millicent Simmons are down at the docks, they're looking for the boats... And they're trapped by a load of bandits. That is, yeah. And, you know, at the moment that they're surrounded by sort of seven or eight of these guys, I thought, well, they're going to call in the aliens. Mm. You know, they're going to do it deliberately. That's the only way they can get out of the situation is to have the aliens come in and take everyone down. And they did, and it worked. But I, I felt no surprise because it was the obvious way out of that situation. Yes. You know. Um. So it's not to say that the film, like, the film didn't jump it out of nowhere it seemed quite obvious that they would do that it's just that I felt no surprise that they did there's a lot of jumping you know so it's not like you remember in the first film the scene where you see the nail you know you see Emily Blunt walk down yeah mm. um, I mean there's an equivalent scene here where at the end the young girl goes through the window and then you see all the dangers you know oh, sure. how yeah. she puts her foot down Right. Uh, I mean, I kind of prefer that kind of thing because, you know, at least you're aware of what the dangers are. Though, of course, what, what happens is that the film then surprises you with the last one that you didn't expect, mm. right? Instead of actually allowing you, the audience, to kind of, you know, participate. You know, so you have this menu of possible 
uh, uh, problems, and then she happens to hit one. Whereas, you know, you're given this menu of possible problems, and then she hits something other completely, right? I mean, I do know what you mean. I would say, actually, though, the equivalent of that nail in the stair in this film would be the towel on the handle. Ah. So when they get into that kind of disused factory where uh, Killian Murphy lives, and they join him, he's got this sort of... It's like, it's like a vault, I guess, or it would have been like a, a burner or something mm. when it was being used. And they can hide inside it, and there's this huge steel door, and you can close it, and it locks. So to prevent it from locking and from making noise, there's this towel put on the locking mechanism so the handle doesn't hit it. And you see that a few times, as you did with the nail in the first film. You saw it a few times of people not stepping on it. And you know eventually the towel ain't going to be there. Someone's going to get locked in this thing. Mm-hmm. Same way that I knew in the first film that it was quite obvious someone's going to step on this nail eventually and what's going to happen. I think that's the equivalent. And I think it mostly works except for the fact that it's the son who gets locked in there with the baby and they've got this limited oxygen supply and at no point did I think that they were going to kill the baby. You know what I mean? Like No tension in that whatsoever because even though they keep on catching up with him, he's running out of oxygen, the baby's crying and so on, there's a monster after them, you never feel like they're in real danger because why? they could not possibly kill the baby. It's ridiculous. It's even more ridiculous than killing the dogs in Cruella. Mm. You know, they just would not do That's it. That's why the film cheats, you know, because, you know, at least in the first film, all the family was in danger, the father dies, right? In this film, all the family is in danger, and not only do none of them die, but actually, you know, the Killian Murphy character, who's just, you know, doesn't die, right? You know, so, you know, the closest of a protagonist that they get to actually kind of die and, and thus be a danger is really the Jamon Hansu character, right? Yeah. Because all the others are basically extras. So it's kind of a bit cheap, actually. I think they should have, you know, eaten the baby. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> baby for lunch. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. You know, you know. That, that's, the, that's the ultimate problem that the film has is I think it's intelligently filmed and edited and you can see the effects they're going for, and a lot of the effects mostly work. But there's this overall thing that you never feel like anyone's in any real danger. The only person of the main cast that I thought was in real danger was Killian Murphy, who I thought there's a good possibility he will end up sacrificing himself for the daughter at the end. And in fact, he pretty much does. And then the daughter's able to save him, so he doesn't die at the end. And that would be this reflection of what happened in the first film, and and, and a quite deliberate one, because his family and his story is a reflection of the main family. He wasn't able to save his kids and mm. save his family. John Krasinski was able to. He sacrificed himself. Mm. And then the daughter says to him, you're nothing like him. And mm. so on. And then this thing of kind of sort of becoming like him or proving that he is like him and so on and so forth. There's, there's this whole That's thing That's why I thought that. they were brothers. Yeah, yeah. Um, so at the end, you know, it would have made sense for him to die in service of saving the daughter and, as you say, he uh, aims at dying for her and doesn't manage it. I mean, I think the film's idea of being progressive is to make the young girl the brains of the scheme of surviving mm. uh, and to give her visually prominence at the end. Though, you know, it's clear that the film even bends that a little. So, you know... The film alternates between the boy doing that with his alien, the girl doing that with her alien. Yeah, so actually it's it's giving them almost equal prominence, which again, it needn't have done so, really. Um, though, you know, the girl's given more visual prominence, uh, which is interesting. On the other hand, I mean, I did think, like, 
you know, the conceptualization of the family, it's really, it is very standard, conservative, maybe regressive. I, you know, my remaining image of uh, Emily Blunt is her crying, <laughs> her caring. Yeah, it's a very stereotypical kind of mother role, really. And, you know, the stranger comes in and he goes and gets all the action, right? Yeah, I think it was at the end of that first film, there was actually, we remarked in the first podcast on the final shot of her with the shotgun and the family. Mm. It's like a badass mum thing, you know? Yes. Um, and she starts off this film in more or less the same way because they're escaping from that exact situation that we've just finished off seeing in the first film and they're moving on, they're trying to get to this location that they hope someone will be. And she's got the shotgun and she's in charge and then the kid gets caught in a bear trap mm. and so the aliens are after them. And, you know, she's, I mean, she's panicking and stuff, but she's she's in charge of that situation, right? Mm. She's the mum, she's got the gun. And then they meet up with the old friend, who then realises is the old friend. The daughter goes off on her own, and the mum goes to Killian Murphy, says, find my daughter. And that's kind of all she is left, really, to do in the film. She also visits her first son's grave. Yes. So, I mean, again, it's really clichéd. And it reminds me also that two members of the family died in the first film and actually that is also part of what made so scary and you know and so on yeah that there was really like you said something at risk something at stake in all these actions whereas in this film as it proceeds you you really do think no one is going to die but maybe we focus too much on what we don't like about the film well I was thinking this when it came out of the film it's going to be so easy to focus on the flaws because the film is not a shadow of what the first one was Mm. and you know, at almost every point in the film, I was thinking, oh, this is good, but... Mm. But the thing is, it is good. Yes. It's exciting. I wish there had been an audience there. We were the only two people in the cinema. We were seeing the film at, at ten past five. Yeah, people weren't there. Yes. Um, and, you know, we're still kind of... We're still in throes of a pandemic, even though we're coming out of it and mm. what have you. So, you know, it's kind of fair enough that people <laughs> weren't there. But... I was screeching on my own. You were, yeah. <laughs> um, And so, you know, with a, with a decent audience, the atmosphere may have been mm. better. I think you're right that it's beautiful to look at, and not just the, the feeling of the image, as it were, but also the actual monsters. You see more of them this time. You get the feeling there's a bigger budget involved. The first one was such a success. The first one had about a $20 million budget and made $340 million mm. worldwide. So huge, huge success. So, you know, you've got more leeway the second time round, right? You get to see a lot more of the monsters. And for the most part, they use very well. I mean, part of the thing that you often get with horror movies is the less you see, the more effective it is. You know, the kind of the Jaws thing, right? Mm. And you had a lot of that in the first film. Here, you know, you do get the, as you say, like the shadows or what's going on, the noises. But then more often than not, you see the monster and they're yeah. right there. It feels more action-oriented for that reason. Mm. But I didn't mind that kind of shift in tone, you know? I think the film is... Broadly, it's essentially reproducing what the first film did, as I suppose sequels tend to do. That's yes. The whole thing of a sequel is, can we do the same again but different? You know. Yes, but so it does the same but different in a diminished way, hmm. right? Whereas you know there are other series of films where you know the sequels are just as good or even better, or you know. So this really does feel like a step down. Yeah, it does. But it's still good fun, and like I said, that 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 slight shift in tone to a more actiony mm. thing, I enjoy it. I think it leads to less tension. You get the feeling that people can fight their way out of situations more often, that sort of thing, and I guess the situations just feel a little less intelligently or creatively conceived. 
Mm. Um, but I really don't mind it. It's a little bit like Sicario 2 was, if you remember. Sicario 2, if you compare it to Sicario, like the first one was really, truly brilliant. And the second film felt diminished and felt like a like almost a pastiche of what the first one was doing. But I really enjoyed Sicario 2. Well, it was terrifically engaging throughout. Yes, it was. Um, so, I but I think this is for me even more of a step down. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, let's put it in perspective. It's a film that I enjoyed watching very much. I wasn't bored for a single minute. It really worked on me. I mean, mm. you know, I did screech throughout the film. But on the other hand, you come out and it feels unsatisfying, right? Like, you know, for all the reasons that we mentioned, but also, you know, in the first film, you thought there was almost like a real formal experimentation. Yeah. That yeah. Kind of, you know, there were entire sequences that seemed entirely silent, right? That kind of, you know, a lot of the scares and the effects and so on were coming out of the use of sound, mm. you know, which is kind of really interesting and unusual. And Yeah, so kind of you come out of the film excited, you know, for many reasons, including kind of formal inventiveness, right? Mm. Again, I didn't feel there was any of that here. Yeah, less inventiveness for sure. I think it, I, I think it still foregrounds visual storytelling Brilliantly, right? The kind of central idea remains there. You can't make noise, and one of the one of the main knock-on effects of that is you can't talk very much. Mm. Um, and but even the film disobeys even that because there's a lot of whispering. Yeah, there's a lot of kind of the incidental noises, and and you do sometimes maybe feel like you wish you had a slightly clearer understanding of what noises were the most dangerous and what noises were okay to get away with. Yeah, you said at one point, why don't they walk on the grass? I mean, well, that's yeah. that's just a yeah. At the start, they, they they come to the end of this silent path, and there's leaves, and so they go, okay, we'll walk very very carefully dry across the leaves. leaves. Yeah, dry leaves. That's yeah. right. So they're crunching away very slowly, and then you get this wide shot, and there's grass on either side. And you go, we'll walk on that. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> like, <laughs> it's so dumb. Yeah, huh. uh, and you know, that's not one of the film's most dumbest things but it's just like you go it's a little bit like in the first one when they go to the waterfall John Krasinski takes his son to the waterfall and they can talk there because the waterfall mm. is so loud it covers up the noise they're making you go why don't they live there yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know or at least why don't they go there when, when Emily Blunt's having the baby you know yeah. like you know take a bit of a precaution instead they set off fireworks which yeah whatever <laughs> <laughs> and there are elements of people actually making stupid decisions in this so for instance uh, Millicent Simmons, the reason that she's gone off is because she's looking for this radio station that she's identified on this island. Mm. And because of her hearing aid creates this feedback that can hurt the monsters or distract them, she goes, well, we can do this through the radio station. We can help a lot of people. Mm. So she goes off on her own, which is dumb thing number one. Then Killian Murphy catches up to her, says, I'm going to take you home. But he doesn't. Dumb thing number two. Like they, There's no rush to get to the island, right? Mm. You know, they could go home, regroup. In a, in a film like this, in any horror film, character splitting up is very, very common. And it very often works to, to high intention and stuff. But every time they do, it's a bad decision because there's never any good reason for it. It's always just people making stupid decisions, as they do here. It don't, they don't need to split up. Mm. They can go back, regroup, go as a group if they want to. Well, I'm not sure about that because, you know, the mother... And the newborn baby, and the brother who's just had his leg caught in a trap. Sure. That those well, they could at least talk it over. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, actually, I think the talking it over is a good point because I do think that we, as an audience, are missing a lot of what I think of as vital contextual information, right? And I think you know, just a little conversation 
over the fireplace could have clued you in onto what's at stake in yeah. these decisions that they're making. What are their choices, right? So uh, I do think that is a, a kind of a problem narratively. I think the film would have been more exciting if we knew more clearly what was at stake. I do like the centering of Millicent Simmons' character. And I think she's a fantastic screen presence and a really good actress. And she completely carries the, that, that central... It is her central role. That's, she's yes. the main character, really. Um, it's an ensemble thing going on. But she's at the core of it. And she's the driving force to get out to those islands and so on. And I think she's wonderful. And I like the film's dedication to putting her at the centre where it would be so so easy to put Emily Blunt at the centre with all the kind of stresses of taking care of her family and trying to fight and all that sort of stuff. So I think that's an interesting decision and a good one. I want to go again about this casting of British actors or you know, actors from the British Isles because, I mean, I know <laughs> that it's a pet peeve and I'm like a broken record on this and that really it bothers almost nobody else. But I do want to underline how I do see it as a problem, right? Because it's an American film representing America and you know, talking about a way of conceiving an imaginary world, but that nonetheless is, you know, the northeast of the United States. And, you know, to be so easy to cast, you know, another white Anglo Saxon fair eyed person in it, even if you have to import them from Ireland. You know, the expense of casting the people who really do live there, right? I mean, you know, the northeast of the United States has a huge Quebecois community. It has a huge Portuguese community. It has tons of Latinos of every origin. You know, it has tons of black people. You know, and yet you cast Cillian Murphy, Gillian Murphy, and you, yeah. Yeah, it's a problem. I know. I think. I mean, uh, I, again, yeah. That's, I, we won't get into it too much. I think <laughs> you can cut it out, but I think it's a problem. No, no, I'm not going to cut it out. I think the th- thing for me is it's about, I suppose, picking. It's white supremacist. It really is. I mean, it's unconscious, but it's white supremacist, really. In this instance, I think. Um, well, I think there's definitely. I mean, the, the kind of the whiteness in this film, we have picked up on, and that's kind of. Uh, I think we're right to. Um, I think the the thing about casting European English uh, actors in American roles, you do have a point. I think for me, it's it's more about picking kind of when that is at when it's most egregious and most offensive. I don't think it's at its most offensive in this film. It is, but it's just it it's isn't. but it's one additional example. Yeah, you're right. It's just that you know, kind of, you begin to see like this pattern in which almost America is erased in this vacuum of British actors kind of playing Americans. I think mm. almost all of the most significant films that we've talked about recently, you know, what what was the one of, about the trial of... Um, Chicago 7. There's the Chicago 7, then there's the one with the Black Panthers, you know, then there's Promising Young Women, all British actors. And, you know, kind of, they're all American films. They're all films set in America, right? Sometimes with really important historical figures. Mm. It's... it's yeah, you know. Nomadland, Minari. I mean, there's there are counter examples. Yeah, and these are these are major films, Oscar nominated, and so on. Yeah, it's so, not it's not throughout all of them, right? But it's it's a trend. Yeah, it's it's a it's a problem. I do think that there is this erasure mm. of what American actors can bring in terms of knowledge, sensibility, cultural memories. Yeah, like you know yeah. what actors absorb through their life that they can then convey. You know, I think uh, American directors are doing a real disservice to American culture in this type of casting. 
Can't say too much about Emily Blunt, though, because, you know, she's his wife. She's John Krasinski's wife, and that's why she's in there. Sure, you know. <laughs> and, and I don't want to be, like, uh, um, what's the word? Didactic. Essentialist, yeah, or didactic, right? Because, I mean, it's, it's not an issue for me because this actor or that actor is mm. cast. But when you see it time after time, yeah. after, it's a real, it becomes a real issue. Interestingly, though, you know, Emma Stone played uh, English in Corella, which we recently saw, and you had a problem with the accent, and Celia, who's Canadian, had a problem with the accent. I had no problem with the accent. You know, I mean, I thought, I thought this is theatrical, right? It's playing up. I, that's well, what I thought that was completely... Also, I mean, well, you know, to say that Emma Stone is playing British, I suppose, but, you know, it's an American production... It's an American's idea of a cartoon character of a British origin. I think that type of casting is also very different, mm. you know, than casting a historical character with... That's certainly true. You know, uh, and, and, and were the situation to be reversed, I think British actors would be up in arms and British audiences would be up in arms. It happens very rarely the other way around, and whenever it does happen, there are discussions about it. So, so... Can you think of an example? Um, Are there Americans playing English in The Crown? Oh, John... Um, who plays Churchill in The Crown? John Lithgow. John he went Lithgow. down very well. People yes, liked him. people liked him. Uh, the Crown is an American production, isn't it? I think so, yeah. So, yeah. you know, which I think is also kind of makes a difference. Um, oh, is it? So, in other words, if it, it's it's less egregious if America produces it and uh, produces an English-based story yes. in their own way. And if, an, if English people produced American-based stories with English actors, you go, well, you know, it's English people, it's fine, you know, they're doing their own thing. But if it's American casting English in an American story, then you go, why are you doing that? Yeah, so for example, you know, I mean, because a lot of people conceive of, a lot of Americans conceive of themselves as having a British background, right? So it becomes, yeah, yeah. that is also part of an American heritage, right? Which is not, not usually the other way around, right? But I think, I mean... Gwyneth Paltrow went down very well with her accent. Reese Witherspoon uh, went down very well with her accent. Uh, and now I can't think of who didn't go very well. It's funny, actually, thinking about Reese Witherspoon... Um, wait, is it Reese Witherspoon? Wait, which accent is that? She played Becky Sharp in Vanity Fair, I think. Oh, uh, so. no. Uh, uh, I'm thinking of um, Bridget Jones... Oh yes, it's not Reese Witherspoon. Uh, yes, I know who you mean, though. I'm gonna have to look. Uh, she's got that weird name. <laughs> Renee see, Zellweger. That's it. You know, I always think I always get her and <laughs> Reese Witherspoon confused. Um, Renee Zellweger, because I think her accent was terrific in that film. But I definitely remember at the time in the UK press there was Wise an American playing this character. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's because it's, right. it's kind of really big well-known, successful novel, and why is an American got this, got this role? And, and I, I think, think she ultimately kind of won people over, but certainly before the film came out, there was... I think there were also issues with uh, Meryl Streep playing Mrs. Thatcher. Although that was not the only criticism that film took for its liberties with the truth. I mean, Well, you know... But I mean, was with... it, what's his name? Airy, was it? Who did, got blown up in the car... And she was there and ran outside and went, no. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is, you know, the, the very uh, fact of casting Meryl Streep and Mrs. Thatcher led to a whole brouhaha here. Whereas Daniel Day-Lewis as Lincoln 
No, sure. Well, Lee, I mean, Lincoln, the, he, the, the greatest president in the world, played by the greatest actor in the world. That was the, that was the narrative. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, that so, was the narrative around it. And, well, that was the narrative, and also but, directed by the greatest director in the world. It really had that feeling of like this is going to be the most important film of all time. Yes, but the because, fact you know that he's British was not raised at all. No, but, I think the fact he was British was part of it. I think. I, I mean, I, I do think America has definitely a view of. British actors as better trained. Well, I think it's a real disservice, and I think the reason why is because you have all these bloody rich directors, you know, who go to New York and who come to London and who see the plays, mm. right? And that becomes the field of actors they're familiar with, and they never go to Milwaukee to cast anything, <laughs> right? And I think it's a real problem because it erases all of those parts of American culture in the casting. Mm. You know, it's, it erases what those actors can bring to a role that is uniquely of that culture. What I would say as well, though, is that, you know, all the English actors getting the American roles, they're still basically the Eton set. Like, what we need is British actors from Newcastle and Liverpool getting those American roles. Then we will have real progress. Yeah, right. <laughs> anyway, let's leave it. Um, do you want to add any last thing? Overall evaluation of A Quiet Place Part 2. <laughs> Very good fun. Worth seeing in the cinema, and it's a good thing the cinema was open for it. And in fact, it was interesting. This was pushed back for ages and ages because we don't, we're not going to make it a streaming release and so on. And actually, it ended up being um, pushed up. It came forward the release date when cinemas were looking at reopening and stuff. And it's been a big hit, which is interesting. Yeah, and it's been successful. And yeah, worth seeing. I liked it. Um, An inferior film to its sequel, but one that uh, you know. I enjoyed watching very much. It really worked on me. Uh, and all of these issues and criticisms and so on, you know, that I have now are, are issues on reflection rather than in that moment when you're watching the film and kind of jumping out of your seat. Yeah, you jumped a lot, and that's the same to be said for that. Yeah. Thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies, and we are on... Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.